Cornell to come forward. And uh, we're going to pray as we open up the word this morning and ask God to speak to us. And uh, Cornell is a long-time new lifer, going way back. I know he looks young, but he's old. <laughs> and Cornell, I'm going to ask that you pray for us, that God would speak to us as we get in the word, okay? Father God, I thank you that you got us up this morning, Lord. And we rejoice in a new day. Amen. Father God, I thank you, Lord, that you've brought us to your house of worship. And we just give you our praise and thanks. And Lord, we humbly just ask you, Lord, that you would open up our eyes and our ears to your voice. Father God, that you would lead us forth and mature us this day, Lord. That we would put aside, Lord, all of the, the things, Lord, that we carry with us, Lord, through the week that we could come and just sit at your feet and hear from you. Father, I speak, I guess, for everybody. And Lord, we're just anxious, Lord, to hear from you, Lord. So, Lord, have your way today. Lord, that we could rejoice and move in your being, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Thank you, Cornell. Amen. All right, let's, let's go. Luke chapter 1. And we're in the middle of a series on uh, like three parts on from shame to grace. And some of us carry a lot of shame for sins and things that we've done in our past, which kind of like scars or clouds over us really affect our entire lives. Some of us carry shame because it's been put on us by other people, by culture, by whatever. And we carry that shame of we don't meet their expectations or what was expected of us, and we carry that with us. So, and it was, but it's really an undeserving shame. But regardless, shame is a, a, just a huge topic. It's complex. And I believe very much that understanding shame is one of the keys to grasping the glory and beauty of Christianity and Christmas. Because we'll see in just a moment, uh, Christmas is, is an event that was shrouded in shame. Uh, and today we're going to talk about Mary and next week as well. Just Mary as a, a person who, while her shame was undeserved that she got, she demonstrates for us what it means to break through and live a life that's free, to be the woman that God's called her to be. She is perhaps the most incredible woman in all the Bible, a towering figure of godliness. And uh, she's a model for us of really the first person who becomes a New Testament Christian. So let's read, beginning at verse 26, I'm sorry, verse 35, and it's after the angel has told her she's going to give birth as a virgin to Jesus. And she says, how is this since I'm a virgin? And verse 35, chapter 1 of Luke, the angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answers. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. 
Now, while many cultures of the world uh, are driven by shame, and some of you come from third world countries, uh, the pressure to conform to a certain way of behavior, whether it's coming from your parents or grandparents or ancestors or heritage, it's great. But the United States has been called a culture that has no shame. And, uh, for example, last year, this kid, Jeffrey Strohmeyer, a California teenager, if you remember, he, in a Las Vegas casino, he sexually molested and murdered a seven-year-old little girl. And he explained to the police that he strangled her by twisting her neck in a way that he'd seen in the movies. Now, his friend his, was with him, named David Cash, and he witnessed the whole event, but did nothing to stop his friend Jeffrey, nor did he say anything to the police. He agreed to keep quiet. Now, eventually, this, his friend David went to college, Berkeley in California, and uh, there was protests about the fact that this kid had witnessed this whole thing. Nothing was said. And so a reporter was interviewing him and said, you know, how could you have done this? And here's what this kid David Cash said about witnessing the murder. He says, I'm not going to get upset about someone else's life. I just worry about myself first. It's a tragic event, okay, but the simple fact remains that I did not even know this girl. The only person I knew in this event was Jeffrey Strohmeyer, my good friend, and he explained how his only obligation was to his buddy. But there was no sense of shame, no sense of remorse, no sense of guilt. And you heard about Amy Grossberg in Delaware with her boyfriend who gave birth in a hotel and killed a baby and dumped him in the trash. And that prom, what's it called, a prom mom that gave birth in a restroom put the baby in the trash and then went out dancing, went back to the dance floor and just like nothing happened. And it's one of the marks of our culture in the 90s, late 90s, uh, as Christianity and, and Judeo-Christian values have really been thrown out the window, there's just less and less shame in the whole culture and you see it marked in our newspapers. Now, uh, last week we got introduced that Jesus' life and his, well, not just his death, but his life and his birth were marked by shame and God set it up in such a way that uh, there's shame all over this birth of the Son of God. And, you know, we think of being chosen and blessed by God. We think of, well, prosperity, good health, everything's going well for me, no suffering, no pain. But it says here in chapter 1 of Luke that Mary was highly chosen and favored. You'll notice it. It's said in verse uh, 28 and then later in verse 34, 35. She's highly chosen, she's flavored, favored, and she's blessed. But uh, if she's blessed, everything's going wrong. And rather than prosperity and everything going beautifully, she's got a very tough road ahead of her. And in fact, just think with me for a minute what it must have been like for her. Here she is, she's 14 or 15 years old, all right? Teenagers, this girl Mary is 14 or 15, max 16 years old. And she now is pregnant, and, and it's, in those days, if you, were, if you committed adultery uh, as a young woman, you were stoned to death. Uh, in the, in the, she lived in a small town called Nazareth. Maybe it had 50 people living in it, maybe 100. Everybody knew everybody else. And uh, what an embarrassing situation. Single mom, uh, her husband's thinking about divorcing her. And that Jewish community, it, it was such a shame to be pregnant. I, I think in us, in our culture, it's even hard to imagine what that must have been like for her. On top of that, imagine the gossip in the town small town as she goes to the store she goes to the synagogue imagine her neighbors imagine her parents as she's sitting at the dinner table and here's a 15 year old girl who had a, a beautiful life ahead of her and all of a sudden she's pregnant now she's saying it's by the holy spirit and 
Then imagine, you know, Mary's grandparents, and then imagine her good friends, and imagine as her, as her womb is growing, and she's in her third, fourth, fifth, sixth month, the slander going on in that community. Oh, a Roman soldier must have did it. She must have gotten herself raped, or she had an affair with somebody in the, in the neighborhood. In fact, if you look at the Gospels, Jesus' entire life was marked by people who said, I, you're illegitimate. You, you didn't even have a proper birth, and he was slandered for being an illegitimate child. And um, you know, again, the, the loneliness of even when she gave birth, she ends up uh, poor in an inn, fourth-class citizen, didn't even get a decent room with a bunch of animals and a, and a stable, and then she's got to flee to Egypt. I mean, shame, shame all over the place. She was so poor, uneducated, when she goes to bring an offering uh, eight, eight days after the birth of Christ, she doesn't even bring what a, an average middle-class family would bring. She's so poor, she has to bring a pigeon, which was sacrificial level for poor people that God allowed for in the book of Leviticus. And, and so, I mean, Nazareth was a backward town with backward people, with strong accents. And that's why they used to say things like, can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, her, her life was just one of, of shame. It was the least likely place for God to move. And then she ends up a refugee in Africa, flees to Egypt with the baby Jesus for a number of years. I mean, everything is going wrong. It's a mess. And, but God orchestrated circumstances like this where her life appears like a failure and a disaster. And shame is undeservedly all over her. And she's got to bear that. Now, if God has spoken of your life, you're highly favored and chosen, uh, how would you feel about this? I think for many of us, we'd be bitter, we'd be angry, we'd quit God, we'd throw him out the window. We'd go minimally on a six-month retreat to wrestle with this word we've heard. We'd go into some intensive therapy. We'd be paralyzed with all that was going on in our life. The last thing we'd be doing, I think, for most of us is serving God. I think we'd say, well, I have enough on me right now to merit quitting for a while until this passes over. Uh, and, and you think of what Mary has ahead of her. I mean, it's not just the event itself of being pregnant now out of wedlock. She's got to bear with now God said this child's going to be sentenced to, to death like a criminal. And a sword's going to pierce through your soul. I mean, I mean, she's having these words. She's got to ponder these things. She doesn't know what's going on. She's got little bits and pieces. This is the first time. And um, it would take her years to understand all that's going on. Now, uh, this, this woman is, is the greatest because if you look at chapter 1, verse 46... She sings. I want you to catch this. And she, she writes a song, and she sings it. And it's for this reason, she's such a towering figure in the New Testament. Rather than, than you know, rebelling against God and say, okay, I'm going to sin wildly, or hiding like most of us would do. We'd hide in our rooms until it passed over. Or we'd go to another town to have the baby, then come back. Many of us, out of our shame deserved or undeserved, uh, we, we hide and we pretend and we make believe we're somebody we're not. We project an image because we're ashamed of who we really are. But Mary does none of that. And, and versus being in shame, she's filled with joy and she sings. And I love verse 45, 46. It's, it says, and you'll notice in your title, this is Mary's song. And I'm not going to read you the whole song, but it's a, it's a beautiful song. And she goes, my soul glorifies the Lord. Here's a 15, 16-year-old Jewish young lady in the midst of being shamed by everybody around her. I, I, I don't know. I can't imagine her relationship with her parents at this point. 
there's got to be some tension, definitely with their friends and relatives. I mean, I'm sure the holidays are not what they used to be. And here she is, she, she goes, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And my whole being, I, I glorify God. And then she just, you know, talks about how God's chosen me and blessed me. Oh, Lord. And the, God exalts the humble and brings down the proud. And, and it's just, a, it's amazing how she just declares herself. Here's a woman walking around, if you know the book by Nathaniel Hawthorne, The Scarlet Letter. I never did see the movie, but I did read the book. But the woman walking around with shame and everyone scrutinizing her. And, and that's Mary. Everywhere she walks, everybody knows the shame that she carries. And staring down at her, inspecting her. But she is not affected by that. She's free. She is full of joy. Not arrogantly. I don't think she's going to buy, you know, well, meat and potatoes or rice and beans at the market with her womb showing and saying, yeah, here I am. Yeah, you like it? You know, I don't think she's being arrogant. But she's able to walk in joy, glorifying God in a very humble way, but unashamedly. You know, Proverbs 25 says, No one whose hope is in the Lord will be put to shame. And it says in Psalm 34, Those who look to Him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. It's a great verse. Isaiah 61, one of the verses about the Messiah is instead of us having shame on us, we would now have a double portion of everlasting joy on us. Now Mary walks that out, this everlasting joy amidst really people trying to put shame on her. Now again, there's two types of shame. There's shame put on us that's not deserved because people expect us to live a certain way and write out a script for our lives. Then there's shame that we carry from our own sins and guilt and rebellion against God and uh, that shame we do deserve, but God also aims to remove that from us as we bring it to him and set us free. So how did Mary do this? And I'm going to give you two, two points, at least in this little text here, which I believe are here. I'll finish it next week, but they're, they're so rich. And the first is that Mary, I think in verse 38, 37 and 38, she's got a revolutionary view of God, number one, and she has a revolutionary view of her worth and value. And I'll take each one at a time, and I want you to think about them, meditate on them, and think about them this Christmas season, because it takes a revolutionary view of God to move from shame to grace and to be free, like Mary. And without that, uh, I don't believe it's possible to walk in joy freely, to be the person God's called you to be, and to do what God's called you to do. Uh, verse 37, you see the angel says to Mary, nothing's impossible with God. Now, if you remember... Earlier in the chapter, the angel came to Zechariah and said the same thing to him, but he didn't believe it. His view of God was too small. It was just like everybody else. Mary, when she hears this, for nothing is impossible with God, she says, I'm the Lord's servant. She believes it. She embraces it against impossible odds. And uh, she embraces revolutionary view of God that nothing's impossible. Now, for most of us, when we hit a difficult situation, what do we do? We get paralyzed. We're stuck. We're, we, we, can't, we can't see straight. Why pray God's not listening? He's not doing anything anyway. Or we go into denial. We somehow run away, hide. But Mary, she's not a victim here about her life. Life's not happening to her. She takes full responsibility, and she, she embraces this. for She doesn't know what's going on, how it's going to happen, where it's all going, but she does know this. 
God's good, and nothing's impossible with God. In fact, just repeat this verse with me, verse 37. For nothing is impossible with God. Can you say it? Ready? For nothing is impossible with God. Now, it's one thing to believe it. It's another thing to really believe it. Mary really believes it, and thus she's able to submit and surrender herself here. Now, she knows that the promises of God are true. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. If God be for us, who can be against us? Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. He who began a good work in me will complete it. She knows this, and her God's really big, and thus she submits. This is a mess, she sees, but somehow God's going to work this for good. Have you ever been in a mess, in a disaster in your life? Maybe it's a financial uh, bankruptcy or a, a financial mess that you just can't see straight. Or maybe you found yourself pregnant, married or single, and you weren't expecting to be. It was not planned at all, and it looks like this is a disaster. What's going to happen now? Where am I going to go? Or you have a child with a disability or a relationship that's been broken, whether it was going to be to get married or it was a, a divorce you walked through. It's just a mess or a chronic sickness or a dream that you had, a goal, and it just didn't happen. It fell apart. Or maybe we're going to take this exam for a certain program and you failed, you didn't get in, but whatever it is, you had something that was a disaster, something that was a mess, something that you say, I can't see how God could bring anything good out of this. Well, Mary knew something. She knew what this angel told her was true, for nothing is impossible with God. And that, in other words, if you could understand everything God's doing, do you know something? You would be God. You don't need God because you're God. Mary was able to submit, surrender, commit herself to the Lord because she said, you know something? God's infinitely good. He's infinitely perfect. He's infinitely great. He knows the end from the beginning. And so while she doesn't know what's going on or how God's doing it, what the future holds, she's able to say, you know something? God is really God. He is good and he is great. And so she says, you know, I believe it. I'm the Lord's servant, and she surrenders to it. Jesus said the same truth to his disciples when they came up against a, um, a boy who was uh, demon-possessed. He was an epileptic. They couldn't heal him. And they got frustrated, and they, they gave up. And Jesus told the 12 disciples in Matthew 17 a, a great truth. And he, he quotes this verse again. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, a little seed, you can say that this mountain move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible to you. I love that. Jesus says, nothing will be impossible to you if you have faith as small as a little mustard seed. Now, what do you do? I know you do what I do. When you hit an impossible situation, a difficult situation, that you can't, you, I don't know, I don't know what's happening. Like Mary, you say, what do I do? What's gonna, where's it going to go? For most of us, we just, we don't try anymore. We don't pray. We just, I don't know, we'll just wait till it passes. Hopefully things will get better. When they get better, I'll jump back in. But Jesus taught here is that if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, now mustard seed is a little, little seed, a little bit of faith, he said. That little bit of faith is going to grow into a big tree. But the key is to, like a mustard seed, if you look at how that w was used by Jesus, is he's talking about if you will persist and abide and stay in the place before that impossible difficulty in your life, if you will stay with me and pray, if you'll keep your eyes on me and believe me, because I will move that mountain and you will see my power, you'll see my glory, you'll see my purpose, you will rejoice. If you'll just stay there with the faith of a mustard seed, it's that, it may not be, that's great faith is to persist. It's like the widow in Luke 18. She came day and night pleading before her judge, 
give me justice, move on my behalf. And Jesus says, if you pray like that, God will bring you justice, he'll answer. But his point is, it's a view of God that says, God is in the business of doing miracles, of doing the impossible, even though he does it in a way we never dreamed of, he does move if we'll stay and persist. Nothing's impossible to him. Mary understood that, in a sense, life is going on on, on two levels. Like your life, you're here, you're going to go home and have some lunch, you, know, you go to work tomorrow, you get your family, and that's one level of life. But Mary understood there's something going on spiritually in the heavens over her life that she can't fully grasp, kind of like what's happening to Job. In fact, Revelation 12 says to us that there was a great spiritual warfare going on in the heavens over Mary, over this birth of this child. Just like over your life, there's a great spiritual warfare going on. And your decisions that you make for or against God somehow affect what's happen, happening in heavenly realms. J.B. Phillips wrote a book uh, about, uh, to kind of give us a glimpse of this, and he tells a story of a, a senior angel, it's a make-believe story, who is showing a young angel that's an apprentice, about, he's showing him the ropes of being an angel. And so this senior, older angel takes this younger angel all over the universe and shows him the splendor and light years and galaxies and black holes and all, all the things in the universe. And, and the young angel so impressed with this glorious universe that God's made. But then the senior angel brings this younger angel and points, he brings him to the, this small galaxy called the Milky Way galaxy with its 500 billion stars, you know. And says, there's this little planet here called Earth. It's really small, it's really insignificant. And, uh, and the young angel says, big deal. What's so special about this little planet on this little galaxy? In fact, he, he called it like a dirty tennis ball. And so the senior angel said, this planet, small and insignificant and not very clean, is the famous visited planet. Do you mean, the young angel said, do you mean that our great and glorious prince went down to this fifth-rate little ball? Why would he do a thing like that? The little angel's face wrinkled in disgust. Do you mean to tell me he stooped so low as to become one of these creeping, crawling creatures on that floating ball? Well, the senior angel said, I don't, I do, and I don't think that God would like you to call them creeping, crawling creatures in that tone of voice. For strange as that may seem to us, he loves them. He went down to visit them, to lift them up, to become like him. That little angel looked blank because such a thought was beyond his comprehension. Now, for you, us too, to think that the, the creator of the vast universe, the sustainer of your breath right now, keeping you alive, able to sit on that chair, understand something of what I'm saying, the breath in your lungs, that, friends, that God somehow chose not just to maintain the galaxies, but to visit our small little planet in the form of a baby. Friends, that's a story like no other story that exists. In fact, if you've never sat down and looked at the Christian message, the message of Christmas, and said, that's incredible, that's impossible. If you've never said that, you've never heard the real story of Christmas. You've never understood what really the Christian message is. It would be like me telling, my job is to tell a friend that, hey, you just inherited $2 billion. And I tell the friend, the friend says, oh, yeah, I was expecting that. 
No, if they, if they have that response, they don't really grasp what I'm saying. Because when you hear the message of Christianity, you hear the true message of Christmas, do you know something? You say to yourself, this is impossible. This is, this is incredible. That is the response of those who really hear the message. Just like Mary heard, like, this, is this is incredible that God would do such a thing. But you see, Mary understood God's faithful, God's big, God's sovereign. He rules from the end and the beginning. And that verse 37, for nothing is impossible with God. So that's number one. was one of the things she understood here that enabled her to sing. That was one. That was one piece. But there's another piece here, and uh, it's found in verse 38. So why don't you go to number two here, where she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. She just turns her life over to the Lord. Here, here, here's her strength. Mary's got all these people with opinions and attitudes towards her. Again, if anybody was shamed, it was Mary. And she would really have people with attitudes about her the rest of her life. Her own family, I'm sure. But she doesn't just have a revolutionary view of God. She's got a revolutionary view of her worth and value. Do you know something? Mary has nothing left to prove to anybody. She really understands that she's a servant of God. She belongs to him. She's not a servant of any other person even in her own family. The first commandment of the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, it's referring to idols, no idols. And an idol is anything, not just a piece of wood or stone that you bow to. An idol is anything that we love or pursue more than we love or pursue God. Think of what you love and pursue in your life more than God. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. We get over-attached to things. So, for some of us, we get overattached to a position or making money or our car or our house or our spouse or having a spouse or our children. And it's good to love these things, but when we love and pursue these things more than we pursue God, the Bible says that's idolatry. Mary is a free woman. Do you know why? She's not overattached to anybody or anything before God. And so we see Mary... Uh, like, uh, she doesn't care about position. She's lost her position now. She doesn't care about status. She doesn't have any of that. Uh, getting degrees. For some of us, if I don't get my career move, I don't get my future, what I planned with God, we flip. Mary doesn't. We say, I'm a failure. Mary's not in this. I'm a failure. My life's a loser. I'm not, I didn't make it. Uh, she's not coveting anything. She doesn't, like, I gotta have this computer that moves faster this Christmas. I gotta have a new modem, a new car, bigger house. Better-looking spouse, better-looking boyfriend, better-looking girlfriend, whatever it might be for you. And she, she, she's not innerly grasping anything. She's just content. She's at peace. She's free. She's unattached to all but God. And she says, I, verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. You know, many of us are burning out, rushing about, because we're so attached to things, what people think. We're in such a hurry. We find ourselves in great debt. But a, when a person understands and sees yourself as a servant, do you know something? Our value and worth is really changed. In other words, a servant is not, she, she's not trying to compete with other girls who are 15. She's not trying to grandstand and polish her image. Here I am. She knows her limits. God's got this path for her. She knows, a, a servant knows what time in history they're born, where God's placed them, what kind of experiences God's laid out, and walks it out. 
A servant's not trying to control everybody else, fix everybody. A servant's trying to do just do what God has for them. And a servant knows they're not going to meet most people's expectations and are not concerned about who gets the credit, just want to do what the Lord's laid out for them. Mary had nothing left to prove. What do you have to prove? She had nothing to prove but say, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be as, he, as you have said. Now, shame comes in two forms. Some of us carry shame from our past and from our sins and even our present sins and enormous guilt. And that shame, it's like we can't seem to quite get forgiveness. And so we carry it and it, and it causes us to go into hiding. It causes us to run away. It causes us to shrink back. It causes us not to take risks, not to get involved in relationships, not to be the person God's called us to be. And we don't really embrace forgiveness and move on in the power of the Spirit. Others of us, uh, we have shame on us because of un unhealthy shame that I'm ugly, I'm no good, that people put on us, and that we're carrying shame that's just, it's, it's unhealthy shame. But often shame is a wake-up call from God about my value and my worth is not coming from Christ. And it's the Lord trying to speak to me that the true me might come out in a healthy way. And so again, some of us feel shame because we didn't finish high school, or we didn't go to college, or I don't make that salary I was expecting, or I'm not anything my parents wanted, or we're carrying shame because of a failed marriage, or a, or a failed parenting that we had, or our looks aren't as good looking as we hoped, or we committed a crime that affected somebody the rest of their lives. We just, I feel inferior to others, or a... God's disgusted with me most of the time. I'll never be acceptable. Or I made a meal at Christmas, a little thing that didn't turn out good, and I feel shame about that. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. There was a young English boy who, uh, in the 1920s, was, uh, has his, his father was in Parliament and was in pursuing his ambitions, and his mother was an American, and, and she was into power plays and seducing rich and powerful men, wore diamonds all over her rings, you know, diamond rings and diamond jewelry. And they had his one son, they, they sent him away to a second-rate boarding school and never visited him. Uh, and the, the son would plead with the father and mother to please come visit. Parents couldn't be bothered. They were too busy. And his father wrote him cruel letters now and then to complain about how ashamed he was to be stuck with such a son. And the father just never went to call on him. When Christmas time came, the boy had to go home. And when he got to his house each Christmas, there'd be a note from his parents saying, we've gone to the continent, Europe, for the holidays. Nanny will look after you. And the, bro the, the boy grew up believing he wasn't worth loving and that, he, that he would have to earn love by superior achievements. His only chance to escape the painful shame was to do great things, to prove that he was not only a worthy, but a great man in the bargain. And so this young boy dove into politics, driven, worked like a maniac, and his name was Winston Churchill. Now, some of you know folks like that. Some of you may be like that because he never dealt properly with his shame because he was looking for his value and worth in what he did, not in what was done for him. And that twist drove his entire life. Many of us, our entire lives are driven unconsciously by our shame. The gospel is the greatest news in the universe. It's that he who knew no sin became sin for us. He took our shame, our guilt, our sin, 
that we might be set free and, like Mary, be able to sing for joy. Now, the gospel is so simple. The message of Christianity is so simple that, as we saw lots of children up here, a child can understand it. And yet, it's so deep and so profound that the most brilliant intellectual can never fully grasp it. And we will spend all of eternity understanding the beauty and the glory of the simple message of Christmas and the gospel. Now, Peter Cassano is going to come on forward with his two assistants. And Peter has taught children's church as well as the school of equipping with adults here in our church. And he's used the same illustration for both. And I said, Peter, why don't you come on over, end my sermon, and give the illustration to everybody here in this room, okay? Sometimes as, uh, <clears throat> the more we seek to know God, the more we seek to know about God, the more confusing we make things. And like Pete said, the gospel is really a very simplistic thing in certain ways, but also very difficult. But I believe some of the ways that it becomes difficult is because we, we ourselves make it difficult. <clears throat> and there are, excuse me. There are a couple of foundational truths that we bank on. We bank that Christ died on the cross for our sins, and we bank that he rose, rose again from the dead. That's the, basic, that's the basis of Christianity. Without those things, there is no Christianity. However, there are so many truths and so many things in between those places that God has done and keeps doing for us, and we lose sight of those things because we are so prone to just being geared on what is foundational and what is it's supposed to be about that we forget that God always has much, much more in store for us than we could ever imagine. One of the verses that explains the message of salvation very clearly is not a verse that we usually look to when we talk about salvation. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21, and it says simply this, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now in this verse... It gives, you a whole, it gives you the foundation that you're, that you're taught, the foundation that you're banking on as a Christian, which is the forgiveness of your sins. But God adds a whole other twist, and he brings the gospel totally around and makes it complete in what he does to start and what he does to end. So in the classes, we use these little visuals, visuals something like this. I have my lovely assistant here. No need to applaud. If you could turn around, face this way. Here's an envelope. And this, two lovely assistants. Sorry, Don. <laughs> Okay, here's an envelope. In this envelope contains all your sin. Every sin you've ever committed, every sin you're committing right now, if you're saying something negative about me talking here, every sin you're going to commit. On this line goes your name. You have Pete. I'll use you as an example, Pete. This is Pete's envelope, all right? Now, in this envelope, everything that you've ever done is here. It's very simply this. It's all your sin, all your guilt, and all your shame. Every single one. But for those of you who are a little more like me, it looks a little more like this. Okay? This is all of it. Now, wrap that up. That's, one of, that's the reason God came. Christ came. He died for our sins on the cross. He took every one, everything that we did, and bore that pain on the cross. There was nothing we could do to have those sins removed ourselves. There's no work we could do, there's no striving, there's no job, there's no nothing. All we needed to do was believe in Christ, that he came and died for our sins. That's all we need. It's by faith that we are saved. And that is where God takes our envelope, our sins, our record, and now we have another envelope here. And here's Jesus. This is the first part. God made him who had no sin for us to be, have no sin to be sin for us. And he takes all our sin and he puts it in Jesus' envelope. 
and it's gone. The Bible says it's behind his back. He drops it into the deepest ocean. It's as far as the east is from the west. It no longer exists. It is totally gone. Your envelope's empty. However, it's not empty. The second part of that verse says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So how did Christ live? Christ lived a life with no sin. He perfectly fulfilled the law. He, made, he had lived the right life, the perfect life before God, totally did the will of the Father, and made every, everything in, about him was perfect in God's eyes. And what he does, what the second part of this verse says, is that, that we might become the righteousness in him. So here's Jesus' record out of Jesus' envelope. It's his righteousness, or his right standing with God, and his perfect record. And God simply takes his perfect record and puts it in our envelope. That's the gospel. Not only are your sins forgiven, but you are also made perfect in the eyes of God. It's so incredible that I don't think we could even really comprehend it. But I know when, this, when the shame of sin and when all the stuff that I hold in, I know I'm forgiven and I know God still loves me, but it still hurts and it's still painful. And when, when I look this way, that I'm righteous in God's eyes, that helps me to move along and become the person that God wants me to be. Not just rest that I'm forgiving, but also to know that I'm perfect. When I was younger, there used to be, when I was younger, there used to be a, a, a TV show. It was called The Romper Room. And I used to watch Romper Room, and there was, this woman would come up with this round thing with a handle on it. And she'd make believe that this thing had some type of magic powers, that she would look through this thing and see these kids, and she'd hold up the thing and she'd go like this. She'd go, oh, you know, I see Peter, I see Mary, I see John, I see Pete. And the kids would be fascinated by it. I certainly was. But she made believe that this thing had some powers where she could see through this, the person that was on the other side of it. Well, that's how God sees us. God looks through what Christ did on the cross and the righteousness that he gave us. And that's how God sees us. When God sees Howie, he looks at Howie through Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that he's perfect. It doesn't mean that he'll never sin again. The word that's used is double imputation. That's the theological term for this. It's a twofold transfer. All it means is simply this, that you are treated as if. You are still a sinner. Your sins are still going to be with you until God takes you home. But God treats you as if you were never a sinner because Christ took your sins. And not only that, but because it's a twofold transfer, God treated, and he did that, I'm sorry, he did that because he treated Christ as if he committed all those sins. So it's not just like Christ is a sinner, but he's treated as if he is. And we're perfect, but we're treated as if we're perfect. That's the way God sees us when he looks at us through this little magic wand. Okay? So that's basically it in a nutshell. Good job. <laughs> You know, Christmas is about a miracle, and uh, Jesus' birth in Mary was by the Holy Spirit. It was a miracle. But every time a person becomes a Christian, has a conversion, that is the same miracle. By the Holy Spirit, a miracle takes place in a person where Christ is born inside of a heart. Every conversion, in a sense, is a miracle. Jesus is alive. He is risen. We don't work it up. But what happens is we receive Jesus, and maybe God will use a crisis, a book, a friend, events, whatever in your life, but it's his work when you actually have a miracle take place within you, and you, Christ comes to live inside of you. It's a conversion. It's a new birth. What happened to Mary 
Where Christ was born in her is what happens to every person following. When you receive Jesus Christ, Christ is born in your heart. You become a new creation. Now, I don't know if that's happened to you yet, but if it hasn't, I want to invite you to say, Lord, uh, I want to receive you. I do want to receive you as my Lord and Savior. I want to be forgiven. I want my shame and sin and guilt, Lord, for you to take that. And then, Lord, I need a new record. I need forgiveness. I need a perfect cleansing that you might see me in Christ. I want to be adopted as your son and daughter, that you might love me as you love your son, Jesus. And one receives that by faith. And I don't want you to leave here today, if you've never done that, give yourself the greatest Christmas gift. Receive a miracle of Christ birthing in your heart, if you've never done that. But many of you are living, you've known the gospel for a long time, but yet your life is marked by guilt and shame. Friends, the gift you can give yourself today is a gift God wants to give you, and that's to be free. To be free to be the man, the woman that he's called you to be. Like Mary, no matter what you've done or what you people say about you, you might sing, you might be filled with joy. You too might have a song on your lips and might fulfill the unique plan and destiny that God has for you. I'm going to invite you all to stand with me. The worship team is going to come on forward, and there's a song I want us to sing. If you can put the words up, Melanie, that would be helpful. You know, the gospel is not us developing a good record and giving it to God. All right, I prayed. I was good this week. But it's that God in Christ gives us a righteous record, a worth and a value, and he gives it to us, being accepted by God. So, friends, it's asking God to accept me for Jesus' sake. This song is really beautiful. It goes, all I once held dear, built my life upon, all the world reveres and wars to own. Everything I thought was gain, I counted loss. In other words, when you see the beauty of what Christmas is about, what the gospel is about, you know something? You're my all, the chorus, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. Friends, that is the very heart of Christianity. And that is something which the Lord desires would fill you with joy and freedom this morning. I want to invite you to sing it from your heart to the Lord. Say, Holy Spirit, just make this alive, that you're my righteousness. And uh, thus, like Mary, I'm free. I have nothing left to prove because it's been done for me. Let's sing it together. All I want is hell.